Welcome to Animals Today, your home for serious talk about animals. I'm Dr. Lori Kirshner. Did you see the pictures of these huge dead sperm whales stranded on the beach in England, Germany, and the Netherlands? How sad to see these majestic, massive sea mammals, and there were 17 in total, just lying dead on the sand. Why did this happen, and is it going to happen again, and can we do anything about this? To get a better understanding of what happened, I want to welcome back to the show Mark Duchamp, president of Save the Eagles International and chairman, World Council for Nature. Welcome to the program, Mark. Hi, Laurie. Nice to be with you. Mark, what happened here? Well, um, first of all, it's been uh, more than 17 whales. Uh, the 17 whales were as at January 29th, 25th when they wrote the, uh, the first article. Then, uh, as of February 4th, there were 29 uh, sperm whales uh, that uh, were stranded on these beaches of three different countries. Um, the, the problem is uh, the, you know, the, the newspapers, the media, don't, don't really want to imply the, the wind farms into this. But if you look at a map... Uh, the area where this all happened is the, the southern part of the North Sea, and this is where you have the biggest concentration of offshore wind farms in the world. Uh, you have wind farms that are already operating, many of them, and then you have many wind farms that are being built. So uh, what is happening in... Uh, you know the, the 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 versions that you see in the media are, are really weird. One of them is this: they say the, the North Sea is uh, is like a trap for the sperm whales because, or for the big whales, because they can't find the exit uh, through the channel. They say the channel is too narrow. But this is this is ridiculous. Uh, the whales can can fit in the channel. It's not too narrow. Uh, you know, the English Channel I'm talking about, yeah. and uh, between France and, and England. And all they have to do, to, to because they enter the North Sea from the north, from Norway, from Scotland, and then they, they, they navigate through the North Sea. And all they have, you know, if they go straight south, and then they hit the, 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 the coast of, of Holland, or that of the of southern England, and all they have to do is follow the coast, and they'll be in the Channel, and and out to the Atlantic again. So uh, this this argument is typical of. Uh, it was uh, given in in the Guardian, for instance, which is the the newspaper in England that is that is most favourable to wind farms. It is uh, so favourable; it's almost fanatical about wind farms, ready to 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 lie or, or to bring up stories like that, like like the, the North Sea is a trap for whales. Uh, it doesn't make sense. Yeah. Uh, they try to find any uh, any any excuse and any reason. It's, it's just um, it's just silly. The, it's, the, the answer is as plain as the nose in the face. If you look at the map and you see where the, where the, the, the whales landed or were stranded on the beaches, uh, it's exactly in the area where you have the most, the biggest concentration of wind farms. Mark, explain how the wind turbines interfere with the whales. Well, they, they interfere in, in two ways. Uh, basically, during the construction period, <clears throat> it's the, the, the driving of the piles, the foundations into the bedrock, uh, are, are, is being done with um, air guns. And these air guns create a huge noise in the in in underwater. It's like an explosion, and this pile driving into the bedrock is causing many whales to 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 have ear damage, ear damage plus <clears throat> damage to their sonar system, which is connected to the ear. Uh, it works with um, uh, um, whales have cavities. Uh, or sinuses in inside their brain, which they use for sonar, because the sonar is their main perception, uh, uh, their main sense. Because underwater you can't see very far, so you uh, the whales are using sonar to navigate, to detect prey, to detect predators, and to communicate between each other. 
without sonar, without their sonar, they are lost. They are like a blind man in in, in a busy street. It's so because, the, as you know, the, the 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 seas are very busy now with all the all the ships. In, as a matter of fact, many whales get hit by ships and die. So it's uh, this is this is the drama. Many whales are injured by the uh, by the sound, a very high sound of of the uh, the rock of the uh, driving the pies into the bedrock during the construction phase. Now the second thing is when uh, during the operation of the wind farm, they uh, the wind farm emits infrasound in the air, but also in the water because it's trans- transmitted from the rotor through the mast into the water. And it also emits uh, seismic vibrations that are transmitted uh, through the mast, uh, through the piles, and into the bedrock. And both these vibrations, the seismic and the infrasound, travel very large distances, at least 50 miles underwater. And uh, the wind industry itself acknowledges that whales uh, uh, get troubled by by these, these uh, um, it's like, um, how do you say? There's an effect of masking. If you have, if you, if you have infrasound emissions in the water, it masks the uh, the blips from from their own sonars. So the whales uh, cannot cannot hear. They cannot communicate. They cannot detect their prey. They cannot detect the coast. Uh, they can't navigate. They are lost. They're totally lost if there is this noise pollution around them, which makes their sonar, which they, they can't uh, actually hear themselves. Because when they send their bleep, it doesn't come back to them. It's, it comes back totally blurred by the infrasound emitted by the wind turbines. So this is the other thing that disorientates the whales, uh, that makes them uh, sometimes panic. Or, or, or make them lose total communication with their with the other whales, and they get lost. And this is how they end up in shallow water, and uh, sometimes seeking refuge there from these these noise pollution. And as they are pelagic species, accustomed to the high seas, they don't know about tides on the coast. So if they go into the shallow water uh, during high tide, and 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 start to sleep there and take some rest at low tide, they, they may wake up at low tide and it's too late for them to get, to get away. And their own body weight then kills them because their organs cannot support so much weight on them outside of the water. Mark, do the governments or the power industry acknowledge any problem with these turbines? And if so, aren't they setting up strict guidelines to ensure our whales are safe? Laurie, it's the same story uh, here for the whales as it is for the birds on land. Uh, the government pretends that uh, that it is taking the the necessary measures to uh, to solve the problem, to make sure that the the whales don't suffer. But there is actually there's no remedy. So all these, uh, uh, it's it's like uh, what they're doing is a song and dance. Uh, trying to say yes, well, we are aware of the problem and we are doing our best, and we are we are working together with the wind industry to find a solution to make sure that the the, the hammering of the pile in the bedrock is 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 not so loud, and we try to insulate that, and we try to do this and that and the other. It's it's uh, actually it, it's a whole uh, how would you say another whitewash, but the. You know, they they sort of cover it up in such in so much language. They and they let the wind industry uh, finance uh, scientific studies. So actually, the scientific studies that come that come out to supposedly protect the the, the whales from from all these influences from the wind turbines, the, these scientific studies are are um, are controlled by the wind industry. Yeah. Just as just as the studies about the bird mortality is controlled by the wind industry, so you're letting the fox in charge of the hens. Right, Mark. What can listeners do to help in your fight to save our whales from this danger? First of all, they, your uh, your listeners could uh, should go to our website, and uh, one of them is the World Council for Nature. It's W C 
www.safetyfn.org. The other one is Save the Eagles International. On the first one, we have an article already on the whales. On the second one, we'll have one in about a, a week or, 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 or 10 days. And uh, then, so you read these articles, and then you write to your congressman, and you write to the press, and you write to, and, and, you, and you call your radio station. And if people don't, don't do that, uh, the media will think, uh, well, there's no problem. And, and the politicians will think there's no problem. Marc Duchamp, I really appreciate you speaking to us from Madrid, Spain. Marc Duchamp is president of Save the Eagles International and chairman World Council for Nature. Marc, thank you. Thank you, Laurie. Thank you for having me on the show. Hi, this is Dr. Lori Kirshner, and I want to thank you for listening to Animals Today. Make sure to visit us on animalstodayradio.com, where you will see all our previous shows and where you can download them free. That's animalstodayradio.com, or you can listen on iTunes. Also, make sure to like us on Facebook and join the discussion. Animals Today gets a lot of its support from the nonprofit group Advancing the Interests of Animals. Please visit them at aianimals.org. That's aianimals.org. And I hope you'll consider making a donation to help pay for the ongoing broadcast of Animals Today. Each week on Animals Today, we strive to bring you the highest quality, most up-to-date information about all animals, how we treat them, and their place in society, while promoting greater respect and kindness towards them. So thanks for your support. That website, again, is aianimals.org. And thanks for listening. For the past quarter century, International Society for Animal Rights has fought the battle against dog and cat overpopulation. Its programs include reducing income taxes by allowing a deduction for spay and neuter expenses, preventing animals adopted from shelters from reproducing, and requiring the mandatory identification of dogs and cats to prevent dumping the unwanted. For a list of all ISAR overpopulation programs, please see their website at www.isaronline.org. Animals Today fun facts for today are about prairie dogs. Despite their name, prairie dogs are not dogs, but members of the rodent family, like squirrels. They grow to be between 12 and 17 inches in length, and they weigh between 2 and 4 pounds. Prairie dogs are very social rodents that live in huge underground burrows called towns, where they can be tens of thousands of prairie dogs, and their tunnels can travel for miles in every direction. Prairie dogs are very affectionate towards each other and will spend a lot of time grooming each other. They will also touch noses when they approach each other like a little kid. And these are your Animals Today fun facts for the day. Hey, folks, it's Danny here. I want to talk to you a little bit about our power grid. Now, it's no secret that the administration has literally declared war on the coal industry. And the result is that the cost of electricity is skyrocketing right past the record rates we already have. Now, ultimately, I believe these policies are going to create real shortages of electricity. It's like Obamacare, but with the power grid. And it gets worse. Experts say that our power grid continues to remain unprotected and vulnerable, which is why I want all of my listeners to be able to produce their own supply of electricity. Listen, I believe that it's time to prepare. You should always prepare and be prepared, especially with any coming problems concerning the power grid. So do what I did. Get a solar generator from Solutions from Science. They run quietly, emit no fumes, and produce an endless supply of electricity from the sun. Go to DanaSolarBackup.com to learn more. That's DanaSolarBackup.com. Use coupon code Dana to get a special half-price offer. DanaSolarBackup.com. Do you owe the IRS money? Do you have years of unfiled returns? Has the IRS garnished your wages or put a lien against your house? The IRS has the power to make you pay back what they claim you owe and will stop at nothing to collect. If you are losing sleep over your IRS tax problem, there is a solution. Call Signature Tax now. Speak with our professionals and feel the weight of your tax burden lifted from your shoulders. Call 800-859-9446 for your free and confidential analysis on ending your tax nightmare. We can help get your life back on track and give you the fresh start you deserve. Our A-plus BBB-rated tax resolution team has over 125 years of combined experience to get you the best deal possible while stopping the IRS dead in their tracks. Call Signature Tax now at 800-859-9446. Call 800-859-9446. Again, that's 800-859-9446. 800-859-9446.
know me or listen to my shows, you know I am adamantly opposed to hunting. In fact, I believe there's something heinously wrong with a person who voluntarily chooses to kill innocent animals for any reason. With Donald Trump dominating the news these days, I thought I would share a little information about his sons, Donald Trump Jr. and Eric Trump, and their exploits as big game hunters. Since a hunting expedition to Africa in 2011, photos of Donald Jr., a self-proclaimed proud hunter, and his brother Eric have recurrently surfaced throughout the media. These photos highlight the two pride-filled, smiling, remorseless men beside the bodies of the animals they killed. An elephant, a leopard, a buffalo, and a crocodile, and other animals. One shows Trump Jr. holding a knife and the tail of an elephant he cut off. Heated commentary both pro and con ensued, defending and condemning them. At first, Donald Jr., standing his ground, tweeted statements such as, quote, I'm a hunter, for that I make no apologies, end quote. Then, probably to protect himself against the firestorm from those disgusted by his actions, he sought justification by stating the meat from the spoils fed hungry villagers who in turn were most grateful to him. After the incident, his father, Donald Sr., remained neutral during press inquiries, but did state that though his sons are very good hunters and enjoy the sport, he himself, quote, doesn't get it. If the purpose of their very costly expedition was, in fact, to supply meat to needy villagers, would it have been possible and prudent for them to dip into their financial assets? Perhaps their dad would have offered them a generous loan to achieve the same goal? In addition, if the noble undertaking was truly at the heart of their mission, why post photos of themselves with savagely slain animals and not photos with the happy villagers nourished via the spoils? The fact is, in spite of what they or others say to justify their actions, we're getting in touch with nature, thinning the herd, feeding people, spending time with our kids, or to placate those disgusted by them, Donald Jr., Eric, and with rare exception, every other hunter, hunt for the thrill of the kill and for self-serving, ego-boosting exploitation of beautiful living beings. I can find no rationality for taking the lives of innocent animals. Trump's son's activities as proud big game hunters seriously tarnish the Trump brand. As smart as Donald is, how come he doesn't get that? Hey, it's Peter here, and you're listening to Animals Today. I want to remind you to visit the website, animalstodayradio.com. You'll be able to listen to all our previous shows for many years now, animalstodayradio.com. And uh, tell us what you think. I want to talk about brushing your dog's teeth. Brushing your dog's teeth is a little like the way people view flossing of their own teeth. You know, it's important, but you never really do it often enough. Maybe you're more disciplined than I used to be about brushing your dog's teeth. But when you have had to watch your dog go through painful dental extractions, not to mention the sting of pain for said extractions, it's easier to get motivated and sustain a good oral hygiene regimen, however tedious it may be. So Josie was a wonderful, sweet dog the second dog Peter and I had together. I first spotted Josie during one of my morning runs way back in the early days of our marriage when my knees were happy to run five to seven miles at a time. And so as I was running past a public golf course in my area, I spotted her sitting by the maintenance area. It was easy to tell that she didn't really belong there and automatically I diverted my run toward her and struck up a conversation with one of the employees there. So I learned that this dog, who might have had some collie and shepherd in her, but looked most like a tame wolf, had been hanging around the golf course for a few days and was being fed scraps of food by the workers. No one knew where she'd come from, and no one seemed to care much about what would become of her. So our meeting was fortuitous, to say the least. I ran home, I got into my car, drove back to the golf course, and with not much difficulty was able to coax this straggly, long-haired, dirty dog into my Honda. Of course, there was no collar, and we learned later there was no microchip either. But now she was my responsibility, and by extension, Peter's. But I have to tell you, even as I was driving her home, I had a feeling that Josie might become our newest family member. That's how precious she seemed to me at that moment. She knew she could trust me. 
We had her evaluated the next day after spending the night quietly quarantined in our extra bedroom. Our family vet found that she had two previously broken legs and an injured snout. It was so heartbreaking and infuriating to realize that this gentle being had been so badly abused. But there was more. The vet also determined that she had multiple abscessed teeth and suggested we see a dentist, which she did a few days later. By that time, Josie indeed had become part of the family. After a good grooming, she was stately and a real beauty. Paco, our Doberman Shepherd mix, accepted her at once, as did Peter, who was starting to realize what it's going to be like married to a dog and cat rescuer. And this all occurred early in our marriage in its first year. Fortunate for me, Peter had stuck around for many subsequent animal adventures. But back to the dentist, who regrettably confirmed that many of Josie's teeth needed to come out. The procedure occurred shortly thereafter, leaving her with only about half of her teeth remaining and a sore post-operative course. But she quickly healed up, and as far as we could tell, she never missed her teeth. Josie lived six more years with us, well into her teens. We are very grateful to have her as part of our family for so long, and what a wonderful chance to save the senior dog from who knows what. But thinking back about how she must have suffered with her mouth filled with abscesses still saddens us. And even to this day, it somehow motivates us to keep up with the oral hygiene with whatever dogs we have in our family. So most authorities recommend daily brushing. And I'm not going to restate too much of what is readily available to anyone who does a little research. But daily brushing is the main thing you can do to promote good dental hygiene. Concentrate on brushing the outside and the chewing surfaces, but don't worry about the inside surfaces as the tongue keeps those clean. If your dog is new to this, start gently and don't try to get it all done the first time around. And start with your finger if you feel it's safe. Make sure to use dog toothpaste because human toothpaste could upset his or her stomach. And just keep up with it and make it a part of your routine. A little treat afterwards is certainly helpful. Our dogs simply like the chicken or peanut butter toothpaste we've been using, and that seems reward enough to keep them coming the next time around. Susie, our diminutive Ridgeback, doesn't really love the process, and it took her a while to get used to this. One trick Peter discovered as we were introducing her to brushing would be to wait until we came back from a walk in the hot weather when she would be lying on the cool tile floor panting with her tongue way out and not interested in anything but cooling down. Then Peter could adeptly brush at least half her mouth and sometimes all her teeth without her objecting. Gradually, Susie has gotten used to the brushing and now it's not a problem at all. So remember, daily brushing for all the doggies. Did you know that there's a huge problem with pet overpopulation? Each day in the U.S., 70,000 puppies and kittens are born. There are so many unwanted dogs and cats that, sadly, millions of wonderful pets are killed every year in shelters because there is just nowhere for them to go. If you let your animal have a litter, even just one, then these kittens and puppies will go on to produce more offspring themselves, and very quickly that adds up to many unwanted dogs and cats. We all can help reduce the problem by fixing our animals as soon as we get them. That's what responsibility pet owners do. Your veterinarian or a low-cost clinic in your area can do the procedure. Also, fixed animals are less likely to get certain cancers and are less likely to bite, fight, roam, or run away. Fixed cats are less likely to mark their territory and attract unwanted animals. So for a healthier and happier pet, and to help improve the pet overpopulation problem, make sure to get your animals fixed right away. This message is presented by Advancing the Interests of Animals. Visit us at AIAnimals.org. Rita, you look upset. I am, and I'm not sure what to do. My neighbor's dog is tied up outside. He looks very skinny and sick, and I never see food or clean water given to him. You need to report this right away. What do you mean? Well, you should call Animal Services or the police and tell them about the abused and neglected dog. They can help to make sure the dog is properly taken care of. Okay, I can't stand to watch him suffer anymore. What's the number? Even though most of us take good care of our pets, not everyone treats dogs and cats with the care and compassion they need to be safe and healthy. If you see that a dog or cat is not being treated properly, report it to animal services or the police right away. Pets need food and clean water and protection from extreme weather. You can make the difference, and you don't have to give your name. Help stop pet abuse and neglect. Be their voice. Make the call. This message is brought to you by Advancing the Interests of Animals. Visit them at AIAnimals.org. That's AIAnimals.org.
There is no getting around it. The great outdoors isn't so great for your cat. From speeding cars to toxic lawn chemicals, coyotes to cruel humans, cats are no match to the dangers of today's world. The good news is animal behavior experts say cats don't need to go outside to be happy. Your family will be happier and healthier, too, without the ticks, fleas, diseases, and the dead critters the outdoor cats bring their owners. And you will never have to explain to a crying child who or what hurt her pet or why he hasn't come home. Cats can enjoy a happy and safe life indoors. The key is to provide attention, exercise, and a stimulating environment. Play with your cat. It's fun for both of you. You can hide toys around the house, too. Just make sure there can be no detachable parts that can be swallowed. You can protect your cat from becoming a tragic statistic. Tomorrow may be too late. This message is brought to you by Advancing the Interests of Animals. Visit them at www.aianimals.org. That's aianimals.org. I want to share with you an email that the Purple Heart Foundation received from one of my listeners. They write, I became aware of your group via the Dana Show, and hearing Dana speak favorably about your group, I did a bit of research, and many things looked good, especially third-party company reviews that rate charity givers. It also brought me to investigate one of the military service groups I've been giving to for a number of years, and I realized that my money would be better given to the Purple Heart Foundation. They write, I plan to keep Purple Heart Foundation on my list going forward. Unfortunately, not all veterans organizations are the same. The Purple Heart Foundation is committed to helping all veterans and one of the biggest challenges that they face, veterans claims. The Purple Heart Foundation's offices and service members nationwide are dedicated to helping veterans receive their benefits. Call 888-414-4483. That's 888-414-4483. They take many forms of donations, but a cash donation has the most immediate impact. All donations 100% tax deductible. Visit purpleheartfoundation.org. I'm Bob DeRigo Jones, and this is Let's Be Fair. A monkey, an animal rights organization, and a primatologist walk into a federal court to sue for infringement of the monkey's claimed copyright. Sounds like a joke, right? But it's actually a line from a real court document filed by a lawyer for a photographer who was sued last year by the group People for the Ethical Treatment of Animals. To make a long story short, a monkey in Indonesia took a picture of himself using a camera that a nature photographer had left unattended. It was hilarious, and the monkey's selfie went viral. Unfortunately, that's when the real monkey business started, and PETA sued the photographer. It claimed that the monkey, not him, should get any money generated by the photo. Let's be fair. I know our legal system sometimes seems like it's gone bananas, but I'm happy to say that a federal judge has just issued a tentative ruling upholding common sense. He says that a monkey can't own a copyright. PETA, however, pledges to keep fighting. Learn more. Visit our website at centerforamericatv.org. According to the FBI Uniform Crime Report, there are over 5,000 robberies every day. Your home could be at risk of being burglarized. Don't put your loved ones and valuables in jeopardy. For just over a dollar per day, your home can be protected from break-ins, fire, and more. Get the latest home security technology from Protect Your Home, your ADT-authorized dealer. Over 6 million households sleep better at night with ADT-monitored home security. What's more, Protect Your Home is offering you their latest equipment, an $850 value, absolutely free for qualified customers. Protect your loved ones and home today. Call now for licenses and to find out more. The call is free, 1-800-261-3620. That's 1-800-261-3620. Again, 1-800-261-3620. $99 installation charge, 36-month monitoring agreement at $36.99 per month. Payment by credit card or electronic bank account charge. For new homeowner customers with satisfactory credit history only. Local permit fees may be required. Certain restrictions apply. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Very pleased to welcome back to the show Peter Wolf. Peter is the Cat Initiatives Analyst with Best Friends Animal Society. Welcome back to the program, Peter. Hey, thanks for having me back. Peter, I want to take a hypothetical situation here. I noticed one day around the office building where I work, there's approximately half a dozen what I think are feral cats. Now, I love cats. I don't want to see them starve. I don't want to see them get dehydrated, especially where I work, which is in the hot desert. I don't want to see this number grow, so there's a half a dozen today. I don't want to see three dozen cats in in a month from now. Yet I also don't want them to be perceived as a nuisance by my coworkers. Peter, give us some tips and tricks and do's and don'ts in this situation. 
Sure. Uh, and, and, and first, I, I sh- should mention um, this uh, this community cat programs or CCP handbook. Uh, listeners can can easily find it online at bestfriends.org/cccphandbook. It's a very comprehensive resource. I mean, it covers everything from uh, legal aspects of, of doing TNR to the actual the nuts and bolts of, of trapping, uh, allowing the cats to recover after surgery, how to how to track, you know, the the kind of key data and statistics for uh, whether it's a TNR group or a shelter that wants to implement these sorts of programs. Um, and in there, you would find in, in the various chapters answers to the you know, the question you posed. Uh, but in a nutshell, and, and, you know, the scenario you pose is a very common one. Cats around an office building, and, and, and why why is that? Well, the, the cats may have been uh, dumped there. They may have wandered over there. But the reason they're there now um, in, in this scenario is They've got adequate food, water, and shelter. Somehow, whatever that, whether that means eating out of a dumpster, more likely it means that you know some kind soul is is feeding them, uh, whether overtly or under cover of darkness if they they feel they get in trouble. Your question was, you know, what what should we do? What shouldn't we do? So that obviously the first step is we want to make sure that the cats are sterilized and vaccinated so that they're you know, to ensure their health and that there aren't going to be kittens. And again, that's the, the whole uh, underlying premise of trap, neuter, return, or TNR. Um, and, and in many communities, there are resources to help, to help folks do this. It can be pretty intimidating the first time you do it, but it's actually re- remarkably easy to get the traps, uh, cats trapped, um, get them to whatever clinic. And then uh, again, they recover for a short period of time. And then you release the cats right back where you got them. And again, often that's accompanied, certainly in this scenario, would be uh, pretty much the norm that there would be continued uh, feeding for the cats. Um, you want to do the feeding, of course, in, in such a way that, um, A, you're unlikely to attract wildlife. So often that means feeding during daylight hours instead of after dark. Uh, you want to do it in a place, in an area uh, where uh, you're not going to be encouraging the cats to become a nuisance, say, uh, getting up on, on people's cars or something like that. Uh, a lot of the nuisance complaints, and there's actually, um, it's certainly our experience, but it's also uh, been well documented in some uh, some research papers that once the cats are sterilized, a lot, a lot of the nuisance behaviors resolve themselves because a lot of it has to do with males, say, fighting or marking territory associated with mating behaviors. Um, so a lot of a lot of that resolves itself. Um, and, and we see this often in neighborhoods where even folks who don't necessarily uh, like seeing the cats around, once they're fixed, the tension that, that may have been there, everyone calms down a little bit. And especially once they see no kittens being born, even some of the, some of the folks who were really not in favor of TNR as a management option, they come around and see that this really is the, the, the best way to accomplish what everyone wants to accomplish anyhow. What if I'm just a, a nice person? I don't want to see these cats starve, so I want to put food down without trapping them and, and fixing them and putting them back. You hit on one of the, there's a number of hot button issues uh, surrounding the uh, TNR as a management scheme. Um, and this is certainly one of them. And, and the thought is uh, by feeding and not fixing, as it's often phrased, um, that these folks are actually um, co- potentially contributing to the problem rather than, than um, you know, just being a good Samaritan. In fact, there's, there's, there's little evidence uh, in, in the scientific literature to suggest that feeding them is contributing, uh, obviously, on some level, reproductive biology is going to be affected by, you know, the nutrition that, that a cat or any mammal is, is taking in. Um, but again, these cats are typically so far away from, you know, starvation, whether they're getting a handout or not, they're still going to be able to reproduce. But the, the key point I, I like to point out to folks who are feeding is you ha- you're, you're halfway there. You've got the cats on a feeding schedule. That makes it really easy to trap these cats, get them fixed, get them sterilized, and then you can go on caring for them without having to see their numbers multiply every year without seeing, you know, often the kittens aren't 
aren't terribly healthy, especially if they're born in uh, warm climates in the middle of the summer or, you know, late if, if it gets cold early in the season in northern climates. Nobody wants to see that. So it's actually, um, it, it, it's an advantage, I, I like to think, when they are on a feeding schedule. Um, but again, it's, you're only halfway there to, to really complete the, the care cycle, if you will. You've got to go the next step, get them fixed, get them sterilized. And again, most communities these days have resources to help folks do that. Unfortunately, not, not all of them do, and that can be a real challenge. Why is it important to return the cats to where they came from after they're fixed? Best Friends and any of the organizations that, that do TNR, are really, we, we really think of relocation as um, you know, just a last resort. And, and there's a couple of reasons for this. One, um, legally, it, it might be considered abandonment. Um, uh, in terms of the cat's welfare, we've all heard the stories of cats finding their way back home after the family moves across the country and the cat flips out or whatever. Um, that's not the kind of scenario we want to set the cat up for. But if the cat's put back somewhere other than where they came from, they're going to try to get back to where they think home is, and there may be any number of hazards between where they are now and where they want to get back to. Proper relocation requires containment for about two to four weeks. Um, again, it's, it's, it can be done. It can be done uh, well. Um, you see it with barn cat programs and working cat programs, for example, but it's labor-intensive. Um, and again, the, the best plan really is just, you know, sterilize them, vaccinate them, put them back where you found them. I agree. It seems inhumane to me to relocate a cat in an environment that he or she is not familiar with. Peter, do we know how difficult it is to control a population of outdoor cats? And what I mean by this is what percentage of them do we need to fix in order to cause the population to stabilize or shrink over time? Uh, that's an excellent question. Uh, the number that's often thrown around, kind of a rule of thumb, is 70 or 75 percent of the cats in, a, uh, in an area need to be sterilized uh, before you, you take what would have been a, a you know a growth curve, uh, rising trend, and get that to decline. Now, where that gets tricky is, of course, you know, 70 or 75 percent of how many. Right, because if you're talking, let's for round numbers, say you've got 10 of them around the, the office building you mentioned previously. Well, we would think if you sterilize seven or eight, you've got it. You know, we'd certainly rather see 10, but if you've got seven or eight, then you're going to be able to get the population to decrease rather than increase. Where that gets tricky is there's presumably there's no. Uh, this isn't an island this, in this scenario, and so cats can come and go. Right. Now, however, um, again, this is where the ongoing care, the managed colony model, is uh, has some advantages because now you've got caregivers who, again, let's assume they're, they're really diligent. They get all 10 of them fixed, so they've got this great managed colony. As soon as a new arrival shows up, they're they're able to you know obviously notice that this new arrival and because there's regular food um, and a feeding schedule, it makes it relatively easy to trap and get sterilized and vaccinated the new arrival. So uh, and, and again, we always push for and and certainly others who do this the the kind of programming that that Best Friends does, we always push for a hundred percent. When you can demonstrate to folks that say. You know, this is the first time the neighborhood or the office complex or whatever, this is the first time in anyone's memory that there haven't been kittens. Boy, you're going to convert an awful lot of people to TNR. Just demonstrating that effectiveness alone, you win a lot of hearts and minds. Yeah, good point. In the last minute, Peter, let's talk about the birds. The bird advocates don't want any outdoor cats and point to millions of birds being unnecessarily killed by cats every year. What are your thoughts about that? Well, and again, you know, we need to be clear that... um, some cats will kill some wildlife. You know, no, nobody, no reasonable person is going to deny that. But the, the claims that, that we often read about are so grossly exaggerated. Um, as, as you know, I, I've, I've written about this for some years, picking apart these various studies. But, 
even if we set all of that aside, I think, in fact, there's a whole lot more common ground there than, than a lot of folks realize in that we know because uh, TNR is scientifically sound and has broad public support, it's the only feasible option we have. Uh, nobody is going to get very far, not in this country anyhow, with proposing you know, some, some kind of eradication scheme in their community. They're not going to get very far with policymakers um, or the, their, you know, the taxpayers who would need to fund this. So, I, I, again, I think we're, we're much more on the same page than a lot of folks realize. Frankly, I'd like to see us working together a lot more on this. Very good. And for my listeners, again, the handbook is the Community Cat Program Handbook off the Best Friends Animal Society website. Peter, well, thank you. Always a pleasure. Thanks for having me. Most people know that chocolate is dangerous for dogs and cats to eat. But did you know that coffee and tea are dangerous for pets too? There are many foods you should not let your pets eat. Onion, garlic, yeast dough, and even avocado. Grapes and raisins are especially toxic to dogs too. Even certain plants and flowers can be toxic or deadly to pets. Cats should not be allowed to eat lilies, daffodils, tulips, or sago palm. And make sure your dogs don't eat azalea, lilies, or sago either. Another danger area, especially with dogs, is eating medicine meant for people. So make sure pills are out of your pet's reach and in safe containers. And of course, leftover bones can crack and cause choking. So don't give bones to dogs. Remember these pet safety tips to keep your pets healthy and happy all year round. This message is brought to you by Advancing the Interests of Animals. Visit them at AIanimals.org. That's AIanimals.org. If you're living with diabetes and have Medicare or private insurance, here is some great news. Call United States Medical Supply today and we'll send you the smallest glucose meter in the world, absolutely free. So small, it fits right on the bottle of strips. And if you call now, we'll also send you this stylish full-featured meter at no charge. That's two free meters. You can keep one in your pocket and leave the other one at home. You can even hook it up to your computer so your doctor can track your results. United States Medical Supply also delivers prescription medication right to my door so I don't have to go to the drugstore anymore. Don't let diabetes get in the way of living. Give us a call today at United States Medical Supply and get the smallest meter in the world for free. Call today. Call 1-800-897-8374. That's 1-800-897-8374. Call 1-800-897-8374 today. And now, the Lens of Liberty. Here's Helen Kreeble. The real strength of America is our unity. The motto, E Pluribus Unum, is on all our currency and coins, and it means from the many one. America is not just a place, it's an idea. The idea that ordinary people can govern themselves. Americans are a diverse people, but we are united because we believe in the principles of individual freedom, personal responsibility, and free enterprise. We should guard our freedoms jealously and examine all government proposals through the lens of liberty, always asking, will this make us more free or less free? When we don't, we saddle ourselves with so many taxes, laws, rules, and regulations that we lose something of utmost importance, our freedom. The Lens of Liberty is brought to you by the Vernon K. Kreeble Foundation. Hello, I'm Jerry Mathers. I was the beaver in Leave it to Beaver. When I played the beaver on TV, I often got into trouble without even meaning to. Well, years later, after I left Hollywood, I got into real trouble. My blood sugar was through the roof. When I was diagnosed with type 2, I was shocked. Now, the very same natural remedies I use to control my type 2 diabetes are available for you in a super easy program called the Diabetes Solution Kit. 
If you have diabetes, I urge you to try this step-by-step -step plan. It has all the natural techniques I used, and it works a lot faster, too. And today, you can try this fast and easy solution without risk. I'm Jerry Mathers, and if I can do it, you can do it, too. If you'd like to normalize your blood sugar and stop taking your diabetes medication completely with your doctor's approval, go to jerrymathers33.com for your free video. That's jerrymathers33.com. Reverse your diabetes in as little as 30 30 days by going to jerrymathers33.com now. Welcome back to the show. Did you get your flu shot this fall? I know Peter did, and since it always seems to make me sick, I elected again to decline. Either way, fortunately, it doesn't seem that this is developing into a bad flu season, at least for people. But I came across an item about flu in dogs, something I wasn't aware of. And this year, a highly contagious strain of flu is spreading across the nation. Dr. Robert Reed is with us. Robert is medical director of VCA Rancho Mirage Animal Hospital in Rancho Mirage, California. Welcome back to the program, Robert. Thanks, Lori. Good to talk to you. Thanks. So dogs get the flu. I wasn't aware of that. That's right. Yeah, canine influenza virus um, has been around as far as we know for 10 years, maybe a little bit longer. Uh, we know of two different strains. Um, one has been around since about 2005. The one that you spoke of was just identified last year, last spring, um, and it's been moving around the country in patches. We've seen it pop up mainly in urban areas. Um, it's possible that it's more widespread than we know because a lot of dogs that get it may not be diagnosed with it and they may recover and never be, it may never be tested for flu virus. But we do think that it's spreading and that it's becoming more of a concern. It's interesting though, um, Canine influenza hasn't really been around long enough for many dogs to have developed immunity to it. So essentially any dog that gets exposed to it is, is going to contract the virus. And, and probably from what we know, about 80% of those are going to get sick to some extent. But the, the degree of illness varies a lot, kind of like it does with people who have the flu. Some of them will only have mild symptoms like fever, maybe not eating, nasal discharge or runny eyes, coughing is a big symptom. But a few of them, and this is probably 5 to 8% of those that, that develop symptoms, a few of those will, will get pneumonia or more significant symptoms, like some people might develop severe symptoms from the flu. Based on the t statistics that we have right now, which are fairly sparse, less than 1% of them would actually die from symptoms associated with the flu. And we don't really know for sure, um, but it's probable that dogs, certain types of dogs may be more vulnerable than others, like with people, dogs that have other health problems uh, that are of advanced age, may have compromised immune systems. They may be more vulnerable to the more serious symptoms than others, and so we might take more precautions, such as vaccination, uh, with those types of animals. Are certain breeds susceptible? We haven't really found any correlation with certain breeds, but as you, you might have guessed, our, our understanding of canine influenza viruses is, is still evolving. I think there's a lot that we, we don't fully understand, and, and it's easy to see how, how dog owners might get a little confused and frustrated with some of the information that comes out on it because it's not not always precise and not every veterinarian agrees on the degree of risk that each pet faces. But I think it's fairly safe to say that dogs who have other health issues who are living in or traveling to an area where uh, canine influenza has been diagnosed or has been prevalent, those dogs should probably seek vaccination and do whatever they can to prevent uh, developing the disease or at least developing severe symptoms of it. And, and also it might be reasonable to take precautions against exposure, um, just like you would, uh, like a person would if they were concerned about picking up the flu. In other words, a dog, uh, an owner of a dog may want to keep them away from areas where a lot of dogs congregate and may avoid uh, shows, uh, boarding facilities, grooming facilities, 
not necessarily because any area is particularly high risk in itself, but those dogs that visit those areas may be contagious, and you wouldn't want to expose your dog to dogs you don't know if you can avoid it. Uh, unfortunately and frustratingly, mo- the dogs seem to be most contagious when they just get the disease, so they may not have many symptoms. You may not even know that a dog that you're around has the, the flu virus, and so you want to be especially careful in taking your dog around unknown areas where dogs congregate, particularly if you have a dog with other health issues. How is it transmitted? The same way that it's transmitted with people, uh, through sneezing, casual contact, even from surfaces, handling surfaces. The dogs are usually going to pick it up by breathing it in or licking the virus, uh, but fairly easy to catch. It doesn't require direct transmission, but pretty close contact. The virus doesn't survive well in the environment, so you know a surface that's been recently contaminated or direct contact to a sneeze or a cough is usually the source. So taking my dog to the dog park, that would be a low risk? I think taking your dog to the dog park is a moderate risk because there's going to be casual contact enough where uh, virus transmission could occur through a sneeze or a cough. So I think dog parks, when there's an outbreak of flu going on, or if you knew there was an outbreak of flu in your community, your area, you probably want to avoid dog parks. And what's the treatment? The treatment is supportive, like it is with flu for people. There's no specific treatment to kill the virus. You're generally going to use fluid therapy when a dog is dehydrated, antibiotics if they develop a secondary infection, and most of it is just nursing care. So when should I worry? There are are statistics available now that suggest that canine influenza has been diagnosed in California and in many other states. Both strains of canine influenza in California have been diagnosed. And if you knew that it was present in your area, you'd probably want to take notice and take measures to protect your dog through vaccination. If you were going to be traveling to an area where you knew that those outbreaks were occurring, if you follow the media reports in that area, then you can get your dog vaccinated. But to be honest, you know, vaccine against vaccination against flu is available to any dog in the same way that people can get flu vaccinated. Some people choose to do that, some don't for reasons of their own. And the same is true with dogs. If you're a person that likes to be particularly cautious about exposure to such viruses or contracting diseases, then you can get your dog vaccinated for for feline or for canine influenza. And I think that's a good idea. But many people are more comfortable with risk or they have a healthy dog. They may not have the same comfort with vaccinations that others, uh, and they may choose not to. Personally, I think the vaccines that are available are safe and effective, and they're the best that we have right now. How about cats or other companion animals? Do they get the flu? You know, um, this virus that we see in the U.S. has never been demonstrated to transmit to any other species. There is a canine flu virus that's been identified in Asia that in some cases has been transmitted to cats, but in fairly specific circumstances. It's never been shown to happen in the U.S. with the two viruses that we know to have, that we know we have here. Dr. Robert Reed, thank you. You're welcome. And thank you for tuning in to Animals Today. This is Dr. Lori Kirshner encouraging you to nurture your love and compassion for the only other beings sharing our planet, the animals. Hi, it's Dr. Lori from Animals Today Radio, and here's your Animals Today fun fact for today. Do you ever wonder why your cat bumps their head against you? Well, that unexpected butting of her head is known as head bunting, and this is your kitty's way of bonding with you. She is identifying you as one of her friends, and head bunting is her way of sharing her love and affection. And this is your Animals Today fun fact for today. <music>